All right, good morning, everyone who is watching online or on your television or wherever you're watching from. We're so happy that you are here. Uh, you might be coming in today asking yourself a bunch of questions, uh, the first one being, uh, whose idea was it for me to wear the same shirt as Dan today? Uh, I, that answer was me. I was like, why not wear the same shirt as a cool person? You know, it's just the case. Another question you might have is, why does Kevin absolutely love this year's Vacation Bible School theme, Flying Junction? Uh, it's because when I was a little kid, I was a ferroequinologist, which is a fancy term for train lovers. So, a uh, little fun fact about me. Uh, another question you might have is, well, why does Kevin live in a box? Because every single time we watch him on the service, on the live stream, he's always in our computer box, and it doesn't seem we see him anywhere else. Well, little do you know. But anyways, so many questions, but here we are finding ourselves in a, in a time and a place where we are going off the map. We have been focusing on the past few weeks, focusing on specific habits for living a lifestyle that goes off the map. And we've been going through these habits, talking about how we are blessing other people, how we are eating and sharing and table fellowship with one another, how we are listening to the Holy Spirit and trying to discern what is the voice of God and what is not God's voice. Uh, we're also learning Christ, not just learning about Christ by reading as many books as we possibly can by, or by entering into as many devotional series as we possibly can, but we're actually taking the time to learn Christ himself so that way we can become reflections of him. And then we also reach a point where we are sent people, that our identity is sent people to proclaim to this world the good news of Jesus and to share that the kingdom of God is here. That's what we learned last week, and those are the habits that we are developing in order to enter into this next stage, this next chapter. We're going to shift gears a little bit in our Off the Map series by uh, talking about some essential items that we need to pack on our journey. Because whenever you go on any sort of journey, whether you are moving halfway across the country or whether you are going on a day hike, there are essential items that you need to pack in order to prepare for what could come. Whether it is a really hot and sunny day, whether it is a rainstorm, or whether it's a snowstorm. But either way, we need to pack and we need to be prepared. Now, my wife and I, we're making the move to California, and right now, our apartment is like, if you've ever left a puppy all by itself, and you come back and all of a sudden the furniture is torn up and pillows have their feathers out of them and they're, you know, sprawled all over the place, that's basically what our apartment looks like right now. Because it's full of boxes everywhere, and we have been busy packing up our things. And during this entire process, what I have come to learn is that there is a difference between my packing, on the one hand, or my wife's packing, aka the right way to pack. Let me explain. So I'm packing up some stuff in the kitchen. We're putting in the Tupperware, we're putting in the lids, we're putting in all the different kitchen appliances into a box, and I'm working diligently to try and pack it as efficiently as I possibly can. And all of a sudden, my wife, the great supervisor of my life that she is, walks over and looks in the box and goes, you could have packed that better. And I look at her and I go, what do you mean I could have packed that better? And she goes, well, you see all that space that is there? 
See, if you just pull this out, and then she proceeds to take everything out of the box and repack it, and somehow, some way, only by the work of the Holy Spirit does that box magically fill up. And I do this with another box. I'm packing it. I pack it a little bit tighter than the other box, but she still comes over. She looks at that box, and she goes, yeah, could have packed it better. And I go, well, what do you mean? I, I, you told me to take that space and fill it with stuff. And she's like, no, 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 no. And takes everything out, puts it back in the way that she likes it, and somehow magically more items fit in there. Now, I am a bookworm, and over my times that I've moved from college to seminary to now California, I've gotten pretty good at packing up my books. And so here I am packing up my books, and I am very good at it. And I leave no space for any possible way for a book for one more book to fit into the box. And I'm like, yes, okay, I got it. I packed this perfectly. I did a good job. Yet still my wife comes over and says, you could have packed that better. To which case I'm like, oh, come on. Am I ever going to get this right? Apparently the answer is no. But either way, there's a moral to the story. And that moral is that when we pack for the journey ahead, as we go off the map, we have to understand that there are right essential items that we need to pack, and that there, are also, there is also a right way to pack those essential items. So over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about what those essential items are and dive into them very deeply. And the first one that we are going to dive into is joy. Yeah, joy. It's awesome. It's wonderful. It's such a great word. And we need to be on the same page before we dive into the scripture that we're going to look into today and before we uh, go any further. Because we need to understand that joy is more than just an emotion that we feel. Normally when we think of emotions, we think of happiness, we think of anger, we think of frustration, bewilderment, uh, any sort of emotion. When you think about them, they're here one moment and then the next moment they're gone or you're back to even keel, if you will. And for different people, that emotion lasts for a different amount of time, whether it's one day, one hour, one minute, even as the case. And so with emotions, they're temporary. They only last for a certain amount of time. But joy, on the other hand, is something more than an emotion. It's a state of being. It's a state of being that no matter what the circumstances that are happening around you are, that you can still have a state of being that is joyful. And what do I mean by that? This is where we dive into Scripture. And we're going to look at someone who exemplifies the joy that we need to pack in our backpacks. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible app or whatever you have, go ahead and turn to the book of Job. And some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, the book of Job? That's about the most unjoyful book in the Bible. I mean, this guy has everything, then loses everything, and then we just hear about his sob story. We consider it a tragedy. Where's the joy in this? Well, surprisingly enough, as we dive into this book, we're going to see just how Job exemplifies the joy that we need. But first, we're going to read the description of the type of person Job is. So in Job chapter 1, starting in verse 1, this is what it says. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep 
3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Now, we read that description, and we go, wow, what a guy Job was. But it's interesting because most of the time, when we look at this passage, we skip over the part that says this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. We look at that and we go, okay, Job was a nice guy. Moving on. But then, then we get to the good part. The part where it says all of his possessions and how complete his family was because there's Hebrew symbolism that shows that Job's life was complete by the things that he owned. And it talks about his status and how wonderful that is. And as People who live in American society, our blood can sometimes run with this idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We want to feel happy. We want to feel joyful. And in order to do that, we think the best way is to look at other people's examples and look at the things that they have, whether it's wealth, whether it's property, whether it's possessions, whether it is status. And we look at that and we go, I want that. I see Job's example, and it's like, I want to have a complete family. I want to have all of the property. I want to be the greatest man among all the people of the East, or in part of Minnesota. But anyways, there's this, there's this idea that we need to, you know, fill our lives with all of these different things. And using the example of money... We might find something that speaks a little bit different message. There was research that was done, and uh, these researchers were looking at if there was a set salary you needed to make a year in order to be the optimal level of happiness. And when you think about it, as far as a relationship of money and joy or money and happiness, we think that it is a straight line on a graph, meaning that if you have no money, you're not really all that happy, and then as we go further and further, the more money you have, the happier you are going to be. And that the people up here are living their best life, and they show off all their possessions, and they're the people that we need to strive to be. And we think that that's the relationship between money and joy. But what the researchers found is that instead of a straight line going up, they found a bell curve. They found a bell curve. So yes, people who don't have as much money aren't as happy, but then the relationship is that it reaches a crest, and that crest is $75,000 a year. So if you're a person who makes $75,000 a year, that is the optimal level of happiness connection between your salary and your happiness, or your joy. And then interestingly enough, after that, happiness levels drop off the more money that you make. It doesn't seem to make sense, but if you think about it, it's just showing that our happiness and our joy can't be found in material possessions, or it can't be found in money. And an additional question we ask ourselves is, okay, what happens when our money is taken away from us? Or what happens when our things are taken away from us? Then what? This is exactly what happens to Job. We read this description of a guy who has it all. But then the next part of the story is interesting because we get a glimpse into a, a heavenly conversation, if you will, between God and Satan. Yes, in the book of Job, this happens. God is having a conversation with Satan, and he's saying, look at my man Job. 
He is blameless and upright. He fears me. He shuns you. And I bet you, Satan, if I were to allow you to wreck this guy's life, that he would still be faithful to me. And so they kind of converse back and forth. And the next thing you know, and this is the key to this story, is that God allows Satan to wreck Job's life. Everything that could possibly go wrong happens to Job in this single moment. All of his cattle and his crops, they're destroyed, and his cattle are taken away by thieves, and his family are all taken away from him and destroyed, and his property is all burned to the ground, and here is Job left with nothing. Do you imagine that for a moment? If you were left with nothing, all your money was taken out of your bank account, your house didn't exist, all your material possessions were gone, I'm sure the natural reaction would be grief and anger and depression and frustration and shame. But sometimes we catch ourselves thinking that we need to direct these emotions towards God himself. I think deep down, even though we are sinful in nature, we still acknowledge that there is a God and that this God is powerful and that, this, and that God works. And sometimes we think that he works to try and teach us a lesson if you will. And so because we don't see God as this person who heals, instead we see this God who's judgmental, then what happens is instead of turning to God, we turn to other things to fill the void that was left by all of our stuff being taken away from us. And pretty soon, it's this assembly line, if you will, where something gets taken off the assembly line, and then something new comes on, and then that thing gets taken away, and then this thing comes on, and that gets taken away, and this thing comes on, and that gets taken away, and it's just on and on and on it goes, and it never fully satisfies. Because what we're trying to find is we're trying to find true joy. And obviously, we can't find it in material possessions. But what about people of influence? What about these different ideologies that are out there? After all of the events that happened to Job, all the tragedy that, incur that he incurred, he has some friends that come and talk to him and want to provide wisdom that they think is godly. And I want to read some examples of their wisdom to you. Here's one of his friends telling him this. As I have observed, those who plow evil... And those who sow trouble, they reap it. Sounds like pretty good wisdom. Moving on, another friend tells Job this. Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. Your enemies will be clothed in shame and the tents of the wicked will be no more. And just one more for good measure. Yet if you devote your heart to him, and stretch out your, your hands to him. If you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault, you will lift up your face. You will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as waters gone by. Now, here's the thing. Taken out of context, this all sounds like wonderful wisdom. This is something that you could potentially find on like a bookmark that you would find in your grandma's Bible. Like that verse written there, that is something that you could potentially find. Because it's appealing. It speaks 
to us because it sounds like it's godly wisdom. But again, there are ideologies out there that on paper they sound wonderful. They sound like something that could be followed. They sound like something that could give us joy. And if everyone jumped on that bandwagon of an ideology that the life would be more joyful, that life would be more satisfying. But here's the problem, and here's what I've observed, is that there are, a lot of these ideologies fall under the category of isms. And what I've learned is that isms never satisfy. Isms are never enough. Think about it for a second. All of the different isms that we know of. Uh, there's some of them that were like, okay, obviously I wouldn't follow that based off of history. We think about like communism, Marxism, uh, Stoicism, Epicureanism, the ancient Greek philosophies. We know, like we've read about those, we've heard about those, and on paper they sounded appealing, but really it turned out disastrous and they never satisfied. They weren't enough. But a lot of times in our political spheres and in economic spheres and in life itself, there are tricky isms that we can get tripped up by, whether it's conservatism, liberalism, libertarianism, socialism, capitalism, consumerism. And here's another one, Lutheranism. Our Lutheran distinctives we can sometimes get caught up in. But the one that I think that each and every single one of us falls victim to from time to time, individualism. We tend to like when we put our needs above the needs of other people. And that's the case with a lot of these isms, is that sometimes we get so caught up in the ideology, we get so caught up in the philosophies that rather than having a relationship with God up here, and maybe our opinions and our values and our beliefs here, we get them reversed. We have our ideologies up here. We think that they're the be-all, end-all of this world, and our relationship with God is kind of put on the back burner. But of course, this doesn't satisfy. And so if this doesn't satisfy, because of the fact that this is idolatry, in case you were wondering, what will satisfy? What will give us a joy that does fulfill? And I think the character and nature of Job answers that question of what type of joy that we should have. See, backtrack with me to Job chapter 1. I purposefully left this part to this point because of Job's reaction to what happened to him. What happened when all of his stuff was taken away, what happened to where he went from the greatest man in the, in the East to probably the least man in the East. And this is how he reacts. He says in verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. What? May the name of the Lord be praised? More like, how dare you, God, take away everything from me? Why didn't Job react like that? He's human. But yet here's Job, and Job is reacting, everything was taken away from me, but God, I'm still going to praise you. I still know that my joy rests in you. And that's exactly his nature, because we see it in his description. Blameless and upright, feared God, shunned 
evil. And I think sometimes we can confuse Job's character as he's handling his grief and talking with his friends. We look at Job and we go, oh, he's just a crusty curmudgeon. He's a guy who uh, just seems like he's a jerk because his friends are giving him great wisdom, but yet he's rejecting every single thing. But it's because Job knows where his joy comes from. He's not necessarily mad at his friends. Sure, he might think that they're silly and idiotic, but really what Job is angry about is that he's asking where God is in this entire book, for most of the book. Because Job has a great relationship with God, and because it feels like God isn't anywhere to be found, we get him time and time again. He's crying out. He's saying, where are you, God? And it's the cry of us a lot of times. When we need God, we're crying out to God, God, where are you in this? God, I need your help. Where are you? I've tried all of these different things to give me joy, to satisfy, but it just doesn't seem like it's enough. God, where are you? It's the cry of Job throughout the entire book until God finally speaks. Chapter 38. We have to get 38 chapters into the book of Job until God finally speaks. And speaks, he does. Because this is what God responds with to Job. Hey, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? This can be summed up as this. Job, where were you when I created the world? Job, where were you when I spoke light into existence? Job, where were you when I breathed the Ruach into human beings? Job, where were you when I surveyed the earth and looked at everything that I created and I said that it was good? And when I looked at human beings and I said it was very good, Job, where were you? Where were you? And it points to an absolute truth about who God is. And it's that God is mighty God is powerful. God is creative. He's powerful enough to speak light into existence, to take nothing, to allow the Spirit to hover over the earth. And out of nothing came what we live in today, what we witness in creation all over the place, mountains and valleys and oceans and lakes. God is powerful. And that is something to be joyful about. That no other God compares to the fact that God was intentional in His creation. God intended for everything to be in the place that it was. But of course, sin got in the way. Our sinful nature. And while God is this mighty and powerful God, bigger than we can possibly imagine, on the other hand, He's also small enough and personable enough to relate to us, to speak to us directly. This is what he does with Job. Job is one man, and God speaks to him in his despair, in his grief, and says, where were you, Job? And not only that, but he restores Job. Job responds by repenting, and God restores him 
Because God cares. God loves you. So really, our joy that can be found in the Lord is a complete package. On the one hand, it's a mighty and powerful, bigger than we could possibly imagine God, but also a best friend or a father figure or, or whatever the case may be, whatever your picture of love and affection and caring is, that's the God that we worship and it's the joy that we should pack in our backpacks as we go about this journey of going off the map. It's in a God who's complete and it's in a God who completes us and it's a joy that completes us as well. On the personal side of things, there are prophets especially Zephaniah, who says that the Lord sings over you. He rejoices in you. He sings songs of joy over you. Hear that today. Know that the God of the universe sings songs over you. Songs of joy, songs of love, songs of care, songs of compassion, all sung over you. Life's going to be hard. It really is. And especially in this day and age where we don't know what the next day is going to bring. Life is hard. But if we are people who are going off the map and we're going off the map in confidence, we better pack our joy that rests in the Lord. Not in material possessions, not in false ideologies, but in the Lord. And what's interesting is that last week, Dan touched on something that was extremely powerful And it's that when we're developing those habits, the reverse is kind of like a ripple effect into your life. I call it the sleeve model. I don't know what Dan would call it, but uh, I call it the sleeve model because it's bells spelled backwards, but this is how it works. What he touched on is that last week as sent people, part of being sent people is that we wrestle with God. We reflect upon our mission. We reflect upon who Jesus is and what he does. And Job was someone who was wrestling with God throughout this entire book. But we take the time to learn Christ. Job took the time to learn God. In his grief, in his misery, there was still that chance to learn God, to learn Christ, not just to learn about him. It was a direct encounter. And then... It gives us the opportunity to listen to, okay, God, what are you actually trying to tell me? And then, after we hear the voice of God, having learned that from Pastor Angie, then we talk about it with other people. We share in table fellowship. We discuss what God's doing and how we've heard him. And then as we're interacting with others, as we're interacting with God, we then go take the opportunity to bless other people. It's the sleeve model, but don't sleeve on it. Sorry, that was terrible humor. And of course, that's, that's the last thing I'm going to say, and everybody's going to remember me by it. Oh, darn. But anyways, uh, no, what I want to leave you with is this, community of grace, is that the joy that is found in the Lord is shown to us in different ways. For Job, he needed to hear that God is the God of the universe. For some of us, we may need to hear that God is personal and that he loves us and cares for us. And for me, as someone who's been here for the past four years and is transitioning into new endeavors, 
Uh, God has shown me his joy through all of you. God has shown his joy through you all. Because I have all of these different memories that I've made from being here. And it's also been the case that this congregation has gone through a lot in the past few years. A senior pastor transition, changing up our Christmas program to do a serve day, um, having to go through a pandemic. Oh my goodness, that's been hard enough as is. It's why I'm speaking to a camera and speaking to all of you watching at home. But yet, throughout all of that, this congregation has continued to show joy that is rooted in the Lord because it's a communal effort, because it's a community that is rooted in God's grace and God's love. And for that, I say thank you. Thank you for showing me the joy that comes from the Lord because I know for a fact that in this next endeavor that I am packing the joy of the Lord in my backpack and that I'm going to take that with me into whatever endeavors the Lord has beyond California or wherever God calls me. And I hope that whatever the next chapter is for each of you, that you take the joy of the Lord with you as well. So thank you, Community of Grace. And I want to pray over you right now as we wrap this message up. Lord Jesus, you are mighty to save. You are strong. You are powerful. You are creative. You form the world out of nothing. But you also, Lord, speak to us each individually. And it's that balance that is incomparable to all the other things that are happening around us. Lord, we pray that our joy would rest in you, that we would flee from the temptation of trying to find joy and status, that we would flee the temptation of finding joy in some sort of ideology, that we would flee from the temptation to find our joy in material possessions, but that, Lord, we would run straight to you, that we would be filled with your love, that we would be filled with your strength, and that that would take us off the map and into the next chapter. So, Lord, I'm grateful that you are a God who is both mighty and personable. Lord, it is so great to be in your presence. We pray that we would feel that presence today. We pray that as we would go about our weeks, that we would prepare our hearts to hear what else we need to pack as we go on this journey off the map. Lord, you are so good, and we love you so much, even though we don't get it right. We still love you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.